The Bob Murphy Show, episode 290. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy welcome back everybody to another episode of the bob murphy show Today, I'm very pleased to have with us Robert Barnes, who's an attorney who's represented a lot of high-profile clients, including Wesley Snipes and Alex Jones, among others. Barnes specializes in issues involving constitutionality, and he regularly represents underdogs, even though in many cases the underdogs are celebrities or people in the limelight, let's say, more broadly construed. I met Robert at George Gammon's event in Florida back in May of 2023, George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Live event, and Robert and I were both on the same panel. So George was sitting in between. Like We had both given our individual talks to the crowd, and then George had us on as, as a panel. Like I think we were the morning panel or something. And I was very impressed with him. He clearly knows what he's talking about, and he's not shy about going into taboo areas, but he's not catering to what the crowd wants to hear, if you get what I'm saying, right? It's not just that he's... Uh, indulging in the prejudices of his audience, but he's also not afraid to go where the train of argument leads him. So what we're talking about today specifically are the convictions of the Proud Boys members who uh, just received a bunch of stiff sentences for their roles in the January 6th assault on the Capitol, as it has been framed. And so we'll dive into that. And a lot of it just real interesting stuff in terms of what the, the legality of it is and what to make of some of these charges and what precedent may be set. And then at the very tail end, I do get into the plea bargain stuff, which some of you may have already heard me talk about on other podcasts. So with all that context, here's my discussion with Robert Barnes. Robert, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Glad to be here. I had asked on my Twitter account that I wanted to get somebody, a legal expert on to talk about the January 6th convictions and specifically of some of the members of the Proud Boys as that was hot news recently. And a lot of people suggested that if, if you can get them, like the A-team, if you can find them, then Robert Barnes is the person to bring on. So can you just maybe explain before we dive into some of the specific questions I had on the on these cases, just in general, what your relationship is to these events? Sure, yes. I'm a constitutional lawyer that does uh, a wide range of cases, civil, criminal, across the, the country, and sometimes international, as the case may be. Reputation was established in politically oriented cases on the civil rights and the criminal tax arena. Represented, you know, most famously, Wesley Snipes in that arena, but a range of other people as well. Won some high-profile acquittals, and because of that was known in certain political circles as a lawyer to go to about these kind of political cases. Mm -hmm. And then the Trump era, everything went insane. They, they tried to weaponize our... I basically kept a lower profile outside of select settings up until 2016. And seeing how they were going to weaponize every part of the legal process and to corrupt every part of our constitutional government to serve political partisan purposes 
was just so offensive and shocking that I became much more of a public figure over the last seven years or so. But basically, it's watching the continued degradation of the constitutional system in live time and trying to fight against it at every level. Yeah, that's great. My dumb joke when when I saw the Wesley Snipes was being hounded by the IRS for back taxes, I tweeted out, and here I thought he had killed all the vampires. Uh-huh, that's no joke. <laughs> the, uh, there were a few. Uh, if you saw some of those witnesses in the trial, you, you, you would think that some of them were vampires <laughs> uh, for the IRS. So it was something to behold. He ultimately was acquitted of all the felony charges, half the misdemeanors. And what a lot of people don't know, nine of the 12 jurors wanted him not guilty of everything. But three of the jurors lied to get onto the jury mm-hmm. and hijacked the jury until they convicted him of something. So they thought, okay, it would be a few minor misdemeanors and he'll go home not knowing that the embarrassment to the government would be so bad, they would demand the judge sentence him on minor misdemeanors to the maximum possible sentence. And what was fascinating is if you get like the news headlines the day after the verdict, it was Snipes wins, big victory, etc. A year later, most Americans don't even know what happened in that trial. They think, oh, didn't I thought Snipes was convicted of tax evasion. He was actually acquitted of tax evasion, acquitted Mm -hmm. of tax fraud, acquitted of conspiracy. But it shows you how much the government manipulates these cases for the court of public opinion. Much of American criminal justice is really just about a PR campaign that rarely has anything to do about law, truth, or justice. Well, yeah, that's it sounds similar, at least at a superficial level, to I recently had Scott Horton on my show, Robert. He's an expert in what happened at Waco, listening to documentaries that Scott has produced on that. And yes, some of the people explained that the trial of some of the survivors when the government was trying to make the case that they had acted unlawfully on the first exchange and that the jury was getting ready to acquit them on all sorts of stuff. And then they were saying, we can't just let them in a few people on the jury. We can't just let them walk scot-free. And so they all agree to what they thought were relatively minor charges. And then, yeah, the judge on the basis of those just threw the absolute book on them and the jurors later contacting the, the people who were convicted and apologizing and saying, we had no idea the judge was going to give you that harsh of a sentence. If we had known that, we wouldn't have let these people convince us to vote guilty on those what we thought were very trivial charges. So l- turning back to the, the January 6th, can you maybe before we dive in the particulars, because again, there's a lot of I- interesting issues on this, Robert, but obviously everybody's been having this ram down their throat for several years at this point. But in terms of like the underlying legality of it. Can you just explain what the government's charges were? In other words, from one level, it's, oh, some people at at worst broke some windows and walked onto property where they maybe thought they shouldn't have been. And geez, some of these sentences seem big for that. And yet, obviously, that's not the way the government was framing what it was that they were doing. It's extraordinary, really. I was there on January 6th, just not at the Capitol. And I ended up meeting with some Trump White House folks because we were looking at coordinating the campaign to the House of Representatives and to Congress on why there should be a challenge to the 2020 election results in the House of Representatives and the Senate, with the House ultimately voting by state delegation under the 12th Amendment and the Constitution of the United States. And we got to watch it live on TV. And almost no one took it as a serious threat. It took it as a protest that got a little rowdy. Uh, That was how everybody that was watching it live Mm -hmm. interpreted it. CNN and MSNBC and the mainstream media interpreted it as a great threat to constitutional liberty and democracy. 
the extraordinary thing is it couldn't have happened but for the corruption of Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and the D.C. mayor. Because I told people that you didn't have to worry about that getting out of hand beforehand. Because I said on January 6th, the Capitol is the most secure building in the world. The security in the Capitol itself has over 2,500 police. Why do they need 2,500 police just for the House and the Senate? Well, that's a good question. But putting that aside, the then they also have the availability of the National Guard and U.S. military. And it's, nobody's going to get anywhere near that. And instead, there was an unusual absence of police activity that day. The police activity that did occur was when people were outside the Capitol, they were throwing sound grenades and all kinds of things, actually physically assaulting and attacking January 6th protesters. And then they would suddenly withdraw. The doors were left open. Some people went down there, were invited in by security, Mm -hmm. by the guards. People went down to just join the protest on the other side of the Capitol and were misdirected, often by Capitol Police, to where they ended up. But the actual evidence has never been fully produced for the world to see. That's the all the videotape, 14,000 hours worth, from multiple different sources of what took place. We've never seen it. You can guarantee that if that evidence looked bad for the January 6th people, we would have seen every bit of it. Instead, we've seen almost none of it. What are they so scared of in wanting to disclose it? A bunch of us have seen, like famously, Tucker Carlson showed that footage of the like six or seven cops escorting the so-called Q shaman through the halls. And they're not on edge. It's not like they look like they're cowering because he's going to order his minions to swarm. Like they're clearly not afraid of him and just marching him through. And so that raised a lot of questions. Are, are you saying there's lots of video footage that the lawyers for the defendants couldn't obtain? Like the government just said, no, you can't see this? Yes, that's correct. And there were two core problems. Mm-hmm. One was even if they had produced all 14,000 hours, Almost all of these people, they targeted defendants who were poor. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the defendants do not have money. There were people who were there that day who they could have accused of the same conduct they've accused of others that they've chosen not to indict merely because they have money. And the reason was they wanted people stuck with the D.C. Federal Public Defender's Office or with a range of lawyers who tried to crowdfund, but most of whom were not quite and nobody would call them the most sophisticated defense lawyers in the country. Okay, okay. And so the so problem one is, they. you're absolutely correct, they didn't produce all of the 14,000 hours. Problem two was, even if they had, there wasn't the means for the defense team to review those. That's where the only way you could really get that evidence effectively presented was it needed to be crowdsourced. And the only way it could be crowdsourced is if it was published to the world. Then let every rando on the internet find the stuff that's really helpful to your case. Mm -hmm. Had I defended any of the January 6th defendants, I was going to not only demand all that video footage, but I was going to release it to the world. Now, that's what where the courts try to stop you from doing that is they try to say it's under a protective order. There's no grounds for this was all publicly videotaped behavior of people in a public site. That should not be subject to a protective order. It's the misuse and abuse of judicial power to reinstate secret trials in America. As I always tell people, the Star Chamber, the problem wasn't that you didn't have counsel. The problem was that the government picked your counsel for you. That's what's effectively happened in many of these January 6th cases. It's even bleeding over into Trump cases. In one Trump case, they didn't, the prosecutor didn't like the witness's lawyer being so effective. 
So went to the federal district court judge, the same district court judge who just got overturned yesterday for trying to seize a congressman's records on the guise that speech and debate clause magically doesn't apply, or whatever she says it doesn't apply to a congressman's records. And even the lefty D.C. circuit said, ah, that's a little nuts. That's a little too far. The same corrupt chief judge with the current chief judge went and sat in and watched Trump getting arraigned. Nobody's ever heard of that ever. That's how these people are cheerleading the prosecution of President Trump and his supporters. They're coordinating it. Indeed, if we're to believe Jack Smith's legal theory, they are engaged, the federal judiciary themselves in D.C. is engaged in a criminal conspiracy to suppress the civil rights of Americans because they've gone way past their duties and oaths and obligations to make sure that they railroaded these defendants. Uh, they, They manipulated evidence. They withheld and hid evidence. They gathered evidence they weren't entitled to. They interfered and invaded the attorney-client privilege. They, they had a joke of a grand jury process in the District of Columbia that shouldn't even exist as a legal jurisdiction in America. Then a joke of a jury trial. And as Emerson College you, you recently polled, 92% of people in D.C. will refuse to give the presumption of innocence to any January 6th or Trump-aligned defendant. Martin Luther King had a better shot at an impartial jury amongst all white men in Birmingham, Alabama in 1955 than any Trump or January 6th defendant has in the District of Columbia. How we created a legal system where the swamp not only gets to judge the swamp, but the swamp gets to judge all the critics of the swamp, the swamp gets to judge all the gator hunters in the swamp, is ridiculous. Now, if we had any kind of conscientious, intelligent Republican Party, which arguably we haven't had since before World War II at times, we would be getting rid of the District of Columbia. I've witnessed it in criminal political cases for 20 years, but the whole world got to witness it at scale in the January 6th and now the Trump cases. Okay, yes. So so I interrupted your narrative, though. So again, just to circle back, you were explaining that from on a superficial level, like you could call this a riot if you want. I don't have a problem if someone wants to call it that, certain pockets of it, sure. But then, how, yeah, how does this rise to the level of, oh, look at these people? So specifically, the legal, what was it like seditious conspiracy? Was that the some of the charges? Like that what these people were trying to do was not merely breaking some property, but it was a far worse offense. Like how did they frame that legally? With fat, it, it escalated up. So at the very bottom, it would simply things be like trespass mm-hmm. or being in an unauthorized location. And... One of the things libertarians and used to be those on the left, but they've run and hid, agreed upon is that we have way too many federal criminal laws. Mm -hmm. In my view, we should just get rid of 99% of them. We don't need an FBI, really. We don't need a Justice Department, really. Send it back to the states. They've always been capable and competent in enforcing criminal law. And outside of very limited, unique national security cases, we don't need a federal police force. We don't need a bunch of federal lawyers and prosecutors in criminal cases, or federal prisons for that matter. But the they started off with every obscure little statute that they've never used before. Think about it. We, we, at Kavanaugh hearings, they took over the Senate building. Not a single person got prosecuted. Late 2020, the, the summer of love, as they called it, they tried to burn down the church across from the White House and tried to physically invade the White House. They attacked Senator Rand Paul and his wife as they were walking outside of a building. There was far more violence in those actions than there was in January 6th. And there was far more what you could call nuisance offenses. 
So it's all, you're in an unauthorized place. And they managed to mount these. They managed to take, okay, you walked past the door. You took a, maybe you took an escorted tour with the security guards. You watch a lot of the videotape that has been published. They literally stay between the lines. Right. Those little lines where you were on the mm-hmm. red carpet. I was like, this has got to be the weirdest riot of all time. <laughs> they stay in between the lines. They take photos. They don't steal hardly anything. You got all kinds of valuable things. They just leave them there. They just look, oh, isn't that pretty? Oh, look at our Capitol building. But they said all those people, it prosecuted actual grandmas. First, people thought that was just a meme. Mm-hmm. No, nah, it's for real. Some 82-year-old lady who just walked around the building. One guy picked up some zip ties he saw on the ground. All of a sudden, he goes from trespass and unlawfully in an unlawful location, which you can compound five different ways. You're like, you're an unauthorized location. You also entered an unauthorized location. You also went through a door that was an unauthorized door for you to enter. Suddenly, some one little tiny nuisance becomes six criminal charges. This is your baseline prosecution for most of the January 6th defendants. Then for anybody they had property who said something wrong, the guy who committed the horrible offense of putting his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, the they would escalate to some additional felony charge. Their third level of felony charges was to claim this was one bad, big, massive conspiracy to obstruct the Holy Congress from its gathering. Now, the obstruction laws that are relatively new in American history on a, as it relates to Congress was meant for when Congress is trying to get information that's important for public legislation, mm-hmm. and somebody lies to them. Somebody bribes a witness. Somebody tells a witness if they go forward, they're going to get shot or something bad is going to happen to them. And, you know, it was making it impossible for Congress to do <clears throat> its legislative duties by you know, obstructing their investigative function. Now they decide to take that law and say, oh, actually, it applies to any time you do anything that could possibly even impact Congress, which is even the D.C. Circuit said, wouldn't that make it a crime to protest Congress in certain cases? They're like, we got to figure one federal judge, to his credit, said this is clearly being applied unconstitutionally. But the rest of the courts have run and hid because everybody in D.C. on the federal court process is terrorized about what happened on January 6th. They see themselves as part of the D.C. political establishment, not as part of America. And they saw this as a great crime against the D.C. political establishment in ways they didn't see the summer of love. And so consequently, they allowed a lot of these ridiculous obstruction charges with 20-year sentences to go forward if somebody did no violent activities of any kind, didn't steal anything, didn't destroy any property, didn't threaten anybody. And then the ultimate one, the one you just mentioned that they escalated, is they brought back that corpse of a criminal prosecution, seditious conspiracy. The last time this was aggressively used in America was during World War I, when they went after Congressman Victor Berger in Milwaukee, and most famously, Eugene V. Debs. Sedition laws are a joke. We first tried them in the Alien and Sedition Acts right after the country was founded by people who didn't like the Jeffersonian liberty wing of the emerging American republic. Thomas Jefferson, to his great credit, immediately disbanded those laws and called them a horror on the Constitution. And fortunately, they mostly stayed dead until Lincoln revived some of them during the Civil War, suspended habeas corpus, locked up his opponents on the guise of insurrection, even in places that weren't having any insurrection. A little note there. The North wasn't insurrecting last I checked, but that's where Lincoln was locking some folks up. Mm-hmm. And then and then the next time was World War One, and young a director of the Bureau of Investigation, then just a little division of the Department of Justice, 
used the used it to create the Palmer raids and build the FBI, a man by the name of J. Edgar Hoover. And for most people have recognized that sedition laws are borderline criminal punishment of free speech and dissident speech. If you look at the history of their application, that's exactly who they target. And they decided to convert this to not only trespass and low levels of minor issues, and then for anybody who committed violence, tagging on threats and things of that nature. Of note, nobody's been prosecuted for causing anyone's death because none of the January 6th people caused anyone's death. There was some Capitol Police that caused some people's death. But contrary to the media narrative, even with a corrupt D.C. jury pool, corrupt D.C. grand jury pool, corrupt D.C. judicial pool, corrupt prosecutorial pool, corrupt agents, they have refused to bring a single indictment blaming anybody in January 6th for a single death or a single physical injury, which tells you how they know that has been a complete media lie. Instead, it became seditious conspiracy well, to overthrow yeah, the government. Let me just ch chime in on that, Robert. You're right. It's just infuriating, but I almost have to take my hat off to them. I see the way people discuss it, like from the media articles down to just the people in the trenches arguing on Twitter about it, like with their own personal account. And they'll say, oh, you don't think this is because somebody will say, are you kidding me? This wasn't a big deal. And then the pushback is, oh, really? With dozens or hundreds of people swarming the Capitol in which people died? That's that they phrase it like in the passive voice, <laughs> because obviously they can't say the protesters killed people. Exactly. I mean, the only people that died at the hands of the Capitol Police, the only people that were physically hurt that day were physically hurt at the hands of the Capitol Police. And the and that's revealed by what they chose to prosecute and what they chose not to. And But basically, they aggregate them together. And the whole Proud Boys story is interesting. I remember talking to Gavin McInnes way back when he first started Proud Boys. It was either at the Deplora Ball or it might have been at a later event sponsored by Mike Cernovich in New York. And I was telling him that if you understand the broader history, you're going to have to be careful that you don't get infiltrated because the Antifa types of the world, uh, the communists always needed the fascist. They needed the theater of fighting the fascists in the streets. They needed the perception of the adversary of them being fascists the, in order to justify their own violent presence mm -hmm. in places like Germany, Italy, and elsewhere. And it was like the temptation for Antifa will be to see the Proud Boys as not only fascists, but to make them into that. First, they just started out as frat bros who like to talk about Western civilization at a bar. If Gavin, co-founder of Vice, who created, as he himself says, regrettably, the entire hipster culture to a large degree. This guy's not exactly some hardcore neo-Nazi, mm -hmm. but he's a big, uh, you should defend people. And this was when the Trump 2016, people forget this, but the first acts of political violence we got to see in the modern era was Trump supporters getting the crap kicked out of them when they walked out of rallies in California. Folks, let's take a break from the action to remind you that this is a very unique podcast, is it not? We talk about number theory, the nature of infinite sets. We talk about the Proud Boys conviction, about the January 6th riot at the Capitol building. We talk about intense theological issues, and later we're going to be getting into Molinism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism. And of course, there's some economics and libertarian theory thrown in just for fun. So if you want to see more of these episodes or just help support the cause, please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks for your support. Remember the famous case of the woman getting cornered and egged 
people getting beaten in the face and all the rest. When one guy punches back, he's the old guy that gets the media highlights and and, pro- and wants to punish. The when Trump people were notoriously nonviolent, given what they were dealing with at those rallies. So Proud Boys forms to help defend people from these attacks. This is when Tifa's going nuts. They take over the campus at Berkeley, won't allow Milo Yiannopoulos to speak, other conservatives to speak. I was at the Deplore Ball in 2017 for Trump's inauguration. My media advisor who was there came in after me. She's maybe five foot one, 110 pounds. The uh, she was having batteries the size of your hand thrown in her head by the Antifa crowd that was there that the police were barely keeping from just beating the heck out of people. And this was walking into the National Press Club. That's where the event was being held. This was the people who tried to poison the, they they got caught trying to poison the air of the National Press Club in days before just to literally kill people that were at that event. Most of them faced no consequence at all. The inauguration, of course, famously had a lot of violence throughout the streets of District of Columbia. And then we've seen everything in the Summer of Love. It's funny, Robert. It almost sounds like it was a violent attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power to the newly elected president. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what's the other irony with this was the idea, they even admitted it in the Proud Boys case, they had no evidence of pre-planning whatsoever. The the only evidence was like randos on the internet saying, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and and that's it. There, There was no organization. What happened was it was entirely spontaneous. The people went down to protest outside the Capitol. They were directed to the wrong place. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing is they were provoked by Capitol Police instigating violence against them. This is the main thing they're hiding in the video evidence. Julie Kelly, who writes for American Greatness, who's done a lot of good work on this, has detailed a lot of this because she's seen some more of the videotape than anyone else has. And, And then they would step back and withdraw and let people walk in. And you had a lot of people who didn't show up initially who showed up from the Trump rally, who are just being waved in by security Mm -hmm. guards, who have no recognition what's happening. So you have a spontaneous event, and it's all facilitated also by the behavior of Vice President Mike Pence, that guy that wants to go around as this uh, self-righteous, self-glorified, noble leader, is a corrupt, fraudulent hack who lied to Trump supporters, building up until January 6th, saying he was going to make sure every vote counted, and then waited until right as the opening bell on January 6th sounded for the opening of the congressional session to say, ah, nah, I was kidding about all that. I don't think I can do anything. I got my pal Judge Ludig here that a lot of conservatives wrongly justified and glorified, tried to put on the Supreme Court in 2005. This was the beloved federal appeals court judge, Judge Ludig, who was the sole legal basis that Pence was able to cite. For those that don't remember, who said it's okay for the United States government to lock up, detain, maybe even torture an American citizen arrested on American soil for an alleged American crime solely by calling him an enemy uh, combatant. It was one of the most dangerous cases ever issued in the history of American law. That's who Ludig is. And then George W. Bush tried to put him on the Supreme Court. This is who Mike Pence is relying upon. Now Ludig's running around saying ban Trump from the ballot on the grounds he's being criminally prosecuted. The right has always had two different streams of thought. One I would call liberty-oriented, populist-oriented, freedom-oriented, constitutionally-oriented. The other one is the authoritarian side. There's always been a a corporatist side, a a military-industrial complex side, a pro-authority side, and that's what Ludig represented. That's what Pence really represented. But by Pence doing what he did, 
He increased the provocative reaction of a frustrated crowd that now is not going to see what they came there to see. But the idea that they were there to obstruct, they had no idea what was going on. It's people just going, who were just mad, who tried to break into the chambers. That's about it. They didn't reach anybody. They didn't get to anybody. They were the ones killed. They were killed by Capitol Police, sometimes summary execution style, for which that officer ultimately not only is not criminally prosecuted, but rewarded with a promotion. You have had multiple Capitol Police people come out, including the head of the cap, former head of the Capitol Police, talking to Tucker Carlson, basically saying this was a setup. They were deliberately deprived of essential resources that day to keep the place secure. There was other activities that shouldn't have happened that provoked the crowd into its response. And the whole thing was the old Star Wars meme. It's a trap. Mm-hmm. It was as big an entrapment as you ever get. And by the way, one of the key FBI officers involved in all this, uh, supervisory officials, was the same guy who just got promoted to D.C. from guess where? Michigan, where he had supervised the so-called Whitmer kidnapping plot, which is one of the biggest entrapment examples in history. And this is where the libertarian crowd, along with the old left crowd, which some still exist, like Len Greenwald, if you look at the script for this, we can fight. Now, I would argue it goes much further back. I think there were false allegations against anarchists back at the turn of the century. I'm very skeptical of the so-called anarchist bombings and who was really behind them, given they magically managed to never find them, but it was used to rationalize all kinds of expansion of state power. But even if you don't go that far back, both the libertarian right and the old independent left pointed out how the the post-9-11 cases were almost all entrapment cases. Look at the Whitmer case. It's the same script, just executed in a different political framework, similar to what's happening on January 6th in mass. Because you dig into the Proud Boys cases, and you're finding lots of government informants, government rats, government instigators, government provocateurs. Christopher, the FBI director, Ray, won't tell anybody, including Congress, just how many FBI agents were amongst the crowd that day. Why is he so scared to talk about that? Because they were there. It was how do you derail the most potentially best substantiated a challenge to a presidential election since 1876. You need a massive distraction, which January 6th conveniently provided. By those riotous events occurring, they were able to never hold a meaningful debate. They were able to silence the entire discussion, derail the entire challenge. Not only that, they used it to threaten Trump, not only with impeachment, which they tried, but with indictment at the time, which they've now done, and told Trump, that if he released all the Kennedy papers, if he pardoned Julian Assange, if he pardoned Edward Snowden, all things he planned on doing from people I know close to the White House until the January 6th events allowed them to say, if you do any of those things, we'll not only impeach you, we'll convict you, we'll indict you, and you'll be in prison before the month is over. So it served, in the old case of Qui Bono, who really profited from January 6th, It's the whole deep state apparatus that claims they were the ones threatened on January 6th. Robert, let me just highlight what you just said there at the end. You're saying that people you trust that were somewhat insiders or whatever thought that Trump wasn't just shooting his mouth off. He really was getting ready in the tail end if the official verdict was that he lost the election, the re-election, that he was going to go ahead and pardon a bunch of people and do things like that on his way out the door and he was told behind the scenes, now that this January 6th stuff went down, you better not do that or else we're just going to lock you up. That's correct. In fact, I knew people very close that wrote the memos supporting and justifying it and believed it was going to happen. And then Mitch McConnell came to Trump 
and said, if you do any of those three things, do you declassify Kennedy documents that the FBI has told you not to do, that if in the intelligence community has told you not to do, pardon Julian Assange or pardon Edward Snowden or pardon the uh, January 6th people preemptively, mm-hmm. then I will guarantee you, you will be convicted in the Senate, you will be indicted, and you'll be in prison by the end of the month. And the he made it explicit. There was no, nothing else to it. And Trump, even up until the last day, according to people very close to Trump, Trump was still considering doing it. The the per, the only person he decided to pardon at the last minute that the whole administration was telling him not to, his corrupt cabinet, sadly, was Steve Bannon. He was like, screw it, I'm going to go ahead and pardon Bannon. But he didn't have the guts to pull the trigger on the rest because the response and reaction to January 6th so threw him off that he was out of his element and he had so few allies up there. Mm-hmm. His own family, Kushner, was a very unreliable ally. And the and then he has other key people. Stephen Miller was a good ally, but that was about it. Uh, now, people look at some of his best allies, Jeffrey Clark, assistant attorney general. They went after him. They're trying to disbar him. And right now they're trying to imprison him in Georgia. Not a coincidence. Rudy Giuliani that stuck with him, same thing. Trying to disbar him, trying to imprison him. So anybody who stood by him in a high-profile role has been also individually targeted, even if they were well-respected, regarded lawyers. Jeff Clark has been blacklisted from any corporate law firm. This is a guy who's one of the most well-respected lawyers in the country, and it never had an ethics issue in his life. And now all of a sudden, he can't get a job, may not email, keep his license, and faces prison time. This is the system. We, have turn, we make banana republics look good by comparison. The trials that took place in the January 6th cases make Soviet show trials look like a beacon of integrity and impartiality by comparison. These are lynching juries with lynching judges, and the fact they're doing it in the name of American legal authority should be offensive to anyone who is proud of the rule of law in America. On that point, I'm just looking at the clock here, and I want to hammer down on some of these details. So I, I vaguely followed this stuff, but I didn't know the particulars, and then even as cynical as I was somewhat shocked to learn that, am I saying his name is Enrique Tario? Yes. Oh, so he's the alleged ringleader of this whole operation, and he got 22 years for his role in the attempted coup. And and, and they casually mentioned the news story that Tario was not present in D.C. at the Capitol building on the day in question. <laughs> and I retweeted that and just said in quotation marks, you call that an alibi? Being like... You, like you, one would think if the guy wasn't even in town, that would be a pretty good defense is to say, how can you possibly be blaming this stuff on me? But no, that didn't matter. Oh, it, it, it's insanity. It, particularly look at Tario. So going back to the Proud Boys, there are people who infiltrated the Proud Boys who diverted their energies to a less constructive operation. People who took the bait on wanting to be physical and violent and fight back. So there were elements like that within the Proud Boys by the time Gavin McInnes disaffiliated himself from them, some of which was fair, some of which was not fair criticism of them. But you look at Tario, he tried, tries to react in the Summer of Love to someone trying, I think someone trying to burn a flag. So he gets subject to a minor D.C. prosecution that actually bars him from D.C. During this whole time as has come out, he's actually serving as an informant for the FBI. He's providing them all kinds of ongoing information. And I was always curious why they suddenly decided to prosecute him. He wasn't there that day at all. He wasn't inside D.C. at all on January 6th. They have very little coordination evidence of any kind whatsoever for anything that took place that day that they can blame on him. 
And the and again, he had someone who had been helping the government for a long period of time concerning any questionable activities. And but now he's come out and explained what happened because he had been an informant. They assumed they could just twi- twist his arm and flip him. Mm-hmm. They said, "Look, you blame what happened on January sixth on Donald Trump. You say you, that you had some conversations with people very close to or Trump himself that you understood to be an order from Trump to do what you did." And you won't get prosecuted on anything related to January 6th. He said that would be just making stuff up that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And now he faces 22 years in federal prison because he wouldn't go along with a fake story. And all of this, there's other egregious examples of that. Joe Biggs, very minor activity that day, in my opinion. Ask yourself, what's the last insurrection you ever heard of that was unarmed? Right. Nobody brought even brought their guns with them that day. I mean, it's like, so a bunch of people walk around the Capitol unarmed. It's not like the Puerto Rican terrorist group. Remember them? They actually shot up the House representatives years ago. We've had actual physical violent assaults on the Capitol. Kamala Harris may not remember that because she's not exactly an American in, her, in how she grew up. I mean, grew up in Canada. Her parents were from outside the country. The judge presiding over the Trump case and some of these January 6th cases. The, the actual granddaughter of some of the most famous radical foreign communists in the world. And it's, it's headlines you read, and you're like, that can't be accurate. And then you dig in, it's, wow, her, her grandfather and uncle were so nuts, even the socialists kicked them out of the party in Jamaica. It's like, how nuts do you got to be to get kicked out of a so- Jamaican socialist group? <laughs> and now she's a federal judge presiding over January 6th cases, presiding over the Trump case. It's a level of banana republic that you couldn't even make a bad comedy about. And almost everything about these cases smacks of Banana Republic. The scary thing is, what does it mean for the future of American rule of law? Respect for American rule of law, domestically and internationally? What happens if they use this as a pretext to actually prevent the American people from voting for who they want for president? It's one thing when you're screwing over Eugene V. Debs. What happens when you're screwing over Donald Trump? What happens to the American people then? What happens to their confidence in the system? their belief in its integrity. What happens if that entirely collapses? Is our political system like our financial system? So that said, if confidence disappears, the whole game comes apart. I'm glad you brought up the the lack of firearms because that, yeah, that's something that I and others I know have been asking almost rhetorically. If they really, because yeah, like we say, the actual results clearly were not that catastrophic. They walked in a lot of people, some guy, what did he steal a lectern or something? <laughs> <laughs> and no, nobody was injured by the protesters. It was only the other way. And then, but then they say, oh, but it was the intent. They were trying to, this cast is, this was a coup attempt to overthrow the regime. And so again, you say, if that's really what they thought they were doing, wouldn't they have been better prepared? It had weapons or things like that. And I wonder, suppose my buddies and I are at the bar beforehand and we're getting drunk and we're shooting our mouths off. You know what? Let's go overthrow the government. And we go up and I take some of pamphlets I've written on nonviolent social institutions and how taxation is theft. And I start trespassing and, and sliding that booklet under the doors of all the Congress. Technically, that could be construed as a conscious planned attempt by my colleagues and myself to overthrow the regime. And would I get 22 years for that? That's just, this seems crazy. And that's why it's so dangerous to all of our freedoms and liberties, the precedent they're trying to set here. Because, for example, the only objective they could show was there was no belief amongst the group that they wanted to stop the certification from going forward. They wanted the contest to go forward. In other words, it was a conspiracy to force Congress to do its job. 
not a conspiracy to stop them from doing their job. They wanted a robust set of challenges to be brought, which is the both the statutory and constitutional obligation of Congress. When there's any and to give you an idea, there have been electoral challenges by somebody in the House in almost every election in our history. This is not some like radically new phenomenon. Democrats have objected to every single Republican that's been elected mm-hmm. since 1968. The, so the idea this is some radical deviation. No, this is democracy in action. This is our Constitution. There was a conspiracy to force Congress to do its job, not stop them from doing their job, not corrupt their efforts to, from doing their job, not prevent them. They wanted them to do it. Their, your job is evaluate whether this election is on the up. And just Mike Pence do what he said he was going to do, which said we're not going to certify until every honest vote is honestly counted. Is that really that radical a thing to do? And the only power the ordinary person really has in our system is the vote franchise. That's their only electoral political capital. And that political capital was being diminished and watered down by what took place in the election. They were just asking that political capital be honored and respected. That's it. That's the only, to the degree you could call it any kind of conspiracy, beyond just random riotous behavior, it was to get Congress to do their job. And yet now even that's being called a federal crime worth life in prison. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it was like a, either the story would change. so that Because I remember I was asking when this stuff was first going down, I said, does it matter if the protesters genuinely believed that, quote, the election had been stolen by the Biden forces. Isn't that relevant? So in their mind, they weren't overthrowing democracy. They were actually, like you say, Robert, they were trying to make sure that an illegitimate president didn't get come in. And people were, no, it doesn't make it. And they were analogies like, if some guy thinks aliens took over his neighbor's body and he shoots him, he still gets charged with murder. And I was saying, okay, even there, though, if the guy's insane, then that does change what the charge is. But also here, the protesters did not, in fact, overthrow the government. So we know they didn't do it. And so now the question is just, were they trying to? So if they didn't actually do it, and we can agree that for many of them, that's not what they were trying to do. That's not what they thought they were doing. Then again, these 15 plus year sentences are are insane. Robert, let me just, I got you for five more minutes, I think, here, if you can go. Can we just comment on the plea deal aspect? So for Tario and then Nordine, Biggs, Rail, and Pozzola, I might be mispronouncing some of those names, each of them, it came out recently, had been offered a plea deal, they rejected, they wanted to go to trial, they were convicted, and then the actual sentence they got was, in every case, double or more than what they were originally offered. So in Tario's case, he was offered a deal that was supposed to get him nine to 11 years, and instead, he's now been convicted and serving uh, a sentence to 22. And so some of the attorneys are coming forth and saying, this is an unfair, calling it a trial tax. It's a violation. What is it? The Sixth Amendment saying, in other words, what, what does it mean to say you have a right to a trial by jury of your peers if when you choose to exercise that, the government's going to double the penalty? So can you comment on that aspect of this? Yeah. So it's always been a constitutional question about plea bargaining and the, permiss- the permissive base of plea bargaining is you can get acceptance of responsibility credit. But to give you an example, they have said that if you assert your right to trial, you can still get acceptance of responsibility credit by time of sentencing, even if you went all the way through trial, depending on the circumstances. While conventionally, someone who pleads does half the time that someone who's sentenced, theoretically, that's supposed to be based on independent, separate facts, not based on punishing you for the assertion of your right uh, to exercise uh, right to trial. And so it does raise that constitutional question amongst many. They have constitutional grounds to challenge the indictments, constitutional grounds to challenge the evidence, constitutional grounds to challenge the withholding of evidence, 
constitutional grounds to challenge the jury veneer, constitutional grounds to challenge the venue. You have a right constitutionally to an impartial jury, an impartial grand jury, an impartial jurist. They got none of those in D.C. It was impossible to get any of those. As I mentioned, the the definition legally, constitutionally, of an impartial jury or jurist is that they presume you innocent as a matter of law. Over 90% of people in D.C. said they could not do that for people that are connected to Trump or January 6th. The people in D.C. thought it was an attack on them because of the dumb media takes that they had. The sedition laws as being applied, the obstruction laws being applied, violate First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights, Fifth Amendment rights. What happened here violates Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights, right to venue, right to vicinage, right to trial by jury, right to the counsel of your choice. So they have an extraordinary number of robust constitutional challenges. Now, to give you an example of how unreliable the plea deals can be, take the case of Owen Schroyer. So Owen Schroyer is the InfoWars war room commentator, journalist, and reporter who previously, because he stood up and protested something inside the Capitol, he very uniquely got criminally prosecuted. Like, how does we see this happen every single happen? I think yesterday people are occupying Kevin McCarthy's office. Not a single one of them will be criminally prosecuted. And yet Owen Schroyer, a reporter, protests something inside the Capitol and they criminally prosecute him. So he had a misdemeanor charge that had a probationary sentence that said he couldn't do anything disorderly at the Capitol. But what does he do on January 6th? The media tried to hide this in all their news stories. He and Alex Jones, when they get down there, see that things are out of hand, they immediately recognize it's a trap. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Alex Jones is even asking Capitol Police, give me access to your broadcast system. I'll broadcast to everybody to get the hell out of here and to get out of the Capitol. And I think I can be very successful. There's a good number of people here that know me and like me and support me and will trust me. By the way, the Capitol refused to give him that. Odd, right? They, for supposedly wanting to suppress a supposed riot, right. they always only did is facilitate and enable the riot. But that's what Owen Schroyer was up there doing. He was up there trying to get people leave, get out of here, get out of here. This is a trap. This is the wrong thing. You're in the wrong location even. He gets criminally prosecuted on the grounds that it was disorderly conduct and in violation of his probation provisions. He's dealing with all this nonsense, so they offer him a plea deal that basically implies, okay, no time, just do the plea deal, no time, we'll wrap everything up, you won't face any jail or prison sentence, and you can move on. He says, okay, fine. InfoWars under massive legal assault. He has limited access to legal fees because of that. Mm-hmm. He just got sentenced to 60 days in, in the, the D.C. Gulag uh, for doing what? And guess what the entire sentencing brief was made up of? All about public statements he had made beforehand. Nothing about what he did on January 6th, but about his speech and his press. The most ironic part was they said, we're not saying punish him for First Amendment activities, Judge. But please sentence him for First Amendment activities. <laughs> That's right. how like you need to know what kind of guy this is when you're considering yeah the disorderly. Yeah, conduct. look at his speech. Yeah. Look mm-hmm. at his speech, and it's one of the only times I know of in criminal sentencing that a judge has explicitly referenced someone's press and speech activities as the grounds to impose an incarceration sentence on. That's the kind of dangerous and scary place we're in right now because of these cases. As we wrap up here, Robert, what's, I don't know, scary is the right word or just whatever, but I know a person who, you know, like a Biden, not even a Biden, but just like a general progressive person on the left, hearing everything you just said in this interview would say, what's your point? You know what I mean? Like they, they wouldn't ruffle their feathers at all. Like they, they would say, yeah, these are genuinely awful people. And of course we have to stop them from thwarting democracy. Like they, I don't think they would be upset if they, like they said, oh, have you seen what that guy was saying? 
if you heard what that guy said, then you'd know why the judge thought it was relevant. <laughs> and I think what I always remind my friends on the left is what is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If they allow this now, the left is the most likely historically target of this, more so than the right. Historically, it's been the dissident left going back over a century that are the most common targets. And you're signing your own death warrants. You're signing your own arrest warrants. You're signing your own incarceration warrants. And this is why I tell my friends on the right, for example, I said that denying bail to Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell was completely wrong. Denying it to Sam Bankman-Fried was completely wrong, unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends on the right, how, how are you an Epstein supporter? And I'm like, eternal truth, number one, Epstein didn't kill himself. But it's not because I'm a Constitution supporter. And the reason why we have to support the Constitution for our adversaries and our enemies is so that the Constitution will be there for us. When my friends on the left are ignoring this, they're ignoring this at their own great risk and expense. Right, which is why the few exceptions to that rule, like Glenn, the Glenn Greenwalds of the world and such, are so to be celebrated just because they really were consistent, that they were totally against the outrages on the George W. Bush administration. Then when it flipped to Obama, he was consistent. It's not that he changed, all his buddies did. Okay, thank you so much, Robert, for your time here. As we wrap up, can you just point for the listeners if they want to know where to follow you and see what you're up to, where they can go? Oh, sure. Uh, all of my content and other people's content, of including Viva Fry, my partner for the Sunday show on Rumble, the Law for the People, they can find at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. That's vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Great. And folks, I'll put links to that and other things but from Robert if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 290. So my guest this week has been Robert Barnes. Robert, thanks so much for your time and the insightful commentary. Always glad to be here. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.